Keep your Bibles handy. We're going to work through Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 this morning. Uh, Joe gets to deal with Melchizedek in chapter 14 next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, as we consider these, this man, Abram, and your dealings with him, that you would teach us to rejoice. And we ask that you would teach us to rejoice in the extraordinary blessings that have come to us through the Lord Jesus as a consequence of these promises that you made thousands of years ago. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. Who was the greatest religious figure to ever live? If you had to pick, if you had to choose one, I, mean, I don't know what criteria you would use. Uh, if, if you just worked your way backwards, uh, maybe you'd go, what, 1800s, you've got Joseph Smith Jr., you might have heard of him. Uh, he uh, had, a, had a vision, apparently, and an angel revealed to him that which would go on to become Mormonism. Was that maybe one man started that? Perhaps not. You go back a bit further, you get to the 1500s. Martin Luther, maybe, right? the, the father of the Reformation, you could say, the result of why we, are, we have gone back to the Bible. No, not Martin Luther. Okay, who would you? I mean, Jesus, he's, he's got to have, you've got to have a crack at that, right? You go back a couple of thousand years and, and he's got a pretty good claim to fame, I would have thought. You go back even further, maybe Confucius or, or Buddha with their particular teachings and followings. Hey, who was the greatest religious figure to ever live? If you're going to go based purely on numbers, just on the amount of people who claim in some way, shape or form to be a, a descendant, shall we say, a spiritual descendant of a particular person, you would have to say that the greatest religious figure to ever live was Abram. I might take you by surprise. More than half of the world's population today claims to be in the line of Abram. I mean, there's 2.2 billion Christians or whatever there is. There's 1.7 billion Muslims and then the tens of millions of Jews who all claim to be the true descendants of this man. And you know what? It matters. This isn't just trivia. This isn't something for you to file away and, all right, okay, the greatest religious figure ever lived. Whenever David asks that over the youth group trivia night, it's going to be a... No, it matters... Because God made promises to Abram, astonishing promises, world-changing promises, history-defining promises, and promises that included his descendants. All of a sudden, we're talking about an inheritance. And you know what happens when you start talking about an inheritance, right? As soon as there's a contested will, people come out of the woodworks. Oh, I've got a claim. I've got a claim. I want a bit of the pie, right? Who are the descendants of Abram? For to them belong the promises. Now we're going to come back to consider that question more as we get towards the end. But as we work through these chapters today, really first I want to show you the promises themselves and then the man that the promises were made to. Yeah, so the promises first. You're going to find it helpful to have the Bible open. We're going to read through most of Genesis 12 and 13 and 15. Uh, so follow along as we go. Here are the beginnings of the promises. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all people 
on earth will be blessed through you. And that's an astonishing start, isn't it? Absolutely astonishing. Now don't miss what's happening here. I think for many of us, particularly if you've been Christian for a long time, or Sunday school even, this is a very familiar passage. And we kind of go, oh yeah, that's nice, God made promises, isn't that cool? Just remember who we're talking about for a moment. What we've learned so far of the Lord God Almighty. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember what God did in Genesis chapter 1? He said, let there be. And all of creation entered into existence. Just remember who we're talking about for a moment. The one who with word, who with a thought, who out of his own desire and volition created everything that exists. The billion, billion stars in the universe. The billion, billion grains of dirt on our world and every other world that exists. The one who didn't just make stars, but then filled this world with all living things. The one who then created humanity in his own image and gave him... I mean, we're talking about the Lord God Almighty here. And he appeared to one random nomad wandering through a desert. And he didn't come just for a chat either. It wasn't God sitting around in heaven. I'm a bit bored today. That guy's got some good stories. We'll go have a yarn. No, he appeared to make promises. Why would God choose to make promises to this one nothing man? And what promises? I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I mean, remember chapter 11 last week? They had set themselves to make their own name and God said no. But now to Abram, he's saying, I will make your name great. And through you, Abram, I'm going to bless the entire world wow imagine for a moment that after church day you walk outside and uh and you go and find an ant and you you pick that ant up you you appear to that ant you say little little ant i'm gonna make you great i'm gonna bless you your name, you're going to be called Ant-Man. You're going to be renowned amongst all the ants. See this great and marvellous land of front lawn? It's going to all be yours. Through you, I'm going to bless every ant in the garden. Now, of course, it's not quite like that, right? Because we didn't make that ant. God made us. We didn't make that ant in our image. God made us in his image. We hadn't already made promises to ant kind the way that God had. But just to get a sense of how astonishing this moment is. And the promises continue. Look down at verse 7. Sorry, verse, uh, where are we? Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now we're adding to it. I'm not just going to bless you and make you great. I'm going to give you the land that you can see. Jump over to chapter 13 and verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted with him, Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north and south, east and west. All the land you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that anyone could count the dust. Then your offspring could be counted. Or as we read in chapter 15, count the stars in the heavens. If you can, that's how many your offspring will be astonishing promises and really you can't underestimate the importance of them 
If you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand these promises. For really, the rest is an outworking of this moment. How do those promises come about? How do they find their fulfilment? Where is the blessing that's going to come to all nations? Really, at any given point in time, as you read through the rest of the scripture, you could just have that question in the back of your mind and it would be of blessing to you. How does this moment in the history of the salvation that God is working serve to fulfill his purposes in fulfilling those promises? They are astonishing. But they came to one particular man. They came to Abram. What sort of a man was he that God would choose him to make promises to in this way? Well, I've got three headings. He was firstly a man of God, secondly a sinner, and thirdly he was chosen. Abram was a man of God. Now, we're going to read through a whole bunch of different little sections, so the passages will come up here so I don't have to keep repeating them. Let's read first chapter 12 from verse 4. Right? Abram was a man of God. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people that accumulated in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Abram was a man of God. God said to him, Abram, pack up, leave. Leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's household. Go. Oh, really, God? I mean, they... They speak a weird language over there. I don't know it. They, they eat strange food. Do I really have to go and live? No, he just packed up and went. I'm a missionary kid. Uh, I, I grew up in Argentina, if you didn't know that. My parents uh, have, been, have been missionaries all of my life, really. Uh, they, they're back on the mission field again now. And so I'm kind of getting a sense of what it must have been like for them to pack up and go. To leave behind parents, nieces, nephews, siblings, comforts, house, possessions. They left it all. Dreams, aspirations, career pathways, anything that you might have come from life here. Comfort, holidays. I mean, now we get a sense of it as they leave their grandchildren behind. Abram didn't stop to question he didn't stop to quarrel. He didn't stop to argue with God. He didn't say, well, that's going to be really hard. Do I really have to do it? No, he heard God's word and he obeyed. Not only did he obey, but I don't know if you noticed the whole way through. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar. Everywhere he goes, he's worshipping, he's proclaiming, he's living under God. Abram truly was a man of God. He was also a man of peace and generosity. Listen to what happened between Abram and Lot. 
chapter 13 and verse 1. So Abram, as he comes back from Egypt, we'll read about that in a moment, comes back from Egypt to the Negev with his wife, everything he had and lot with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev he went back to the place until he came to Bethel, between Bethel and I where he'd been earlier, where he first built an altar, called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land couldn't support them while they stayed together. Their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together and quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. Now, the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. Now, what are you going to do? You're the boss. Well, this is your nephew. I take it he's subservient to you. You're the one who has a say. There's quarrelling happening. Abram's a man of peace and a man of generosity. Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, Let's not have quarrelling between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine. We're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Listen to this. Let's part company if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Lot, you choose, he says. And what does Lot do? Lot looked up, saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. There's another Eden right there. Like the land of Egypt towards Zohar, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. Lot said, I'll have the good bit. Abram lived in the land of Canaan. Lot lived among the cities of the plain. The men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And we'll hear a bit more about that in a couple of weeks' time. What a generous man. I mean, to look at the land before you, Lot says, I'll take the nice bit, you can have the desert. Okay, he says. And off they go. They part ways. He was a man in the end whose trust in God counted as righteousness did you notice that in chapter 15 as it was read for us the very last verse in verse 6 chapter 15 and verse 6 Abram believed the Lord and God credited to him as righteousness what an astonishing thing in the midst of these promises, in the midst of these truly miraculous... I mean, I, father... Remember, he's the joke. This man is the joke. right? His name means father, but he has no kids. And God is promising him that he's going to have descendants like the stars and the earth. And through this great nation, blessings are going to come to the whole world. And it's just all astonishing and ridiculous. But he believes God. God has said it. So it must be true. It will happen, and God counted it as righteousness. Imputed righteousness, we say. It's not his own. It's not that he was a perfect man. We're about to see that he very much wasn't a perfect man. But this is how God operates. What pleases him is that people believe and trust and accept what he has to say. That is what pleases him. That is righteousness before the Lord. So Abram was a man of God. But Abram was also a sinner. He wasn't given promises because he was perfect. Come back to chapter 12 and look at verse 10 with me. And this really quite sordid series of events that happened in Egypt. 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. It's a good, good way to start. Just blokes, that's, that's, take a tip there. But not the next bit, because he continued, when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. So just say you're my sister, that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, manservants, maidservants, camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Make no mistake. Abram's righteousness wasn't that he was a perfect man. Far, far from it. I I don't know what you call this, but I keep thinking of the word prostitution, right? You send a woman who's in your household to do sex work for someone else and you gain from it. And even of this man who is spoken of as having great faith in God and great trust and dependence of him, here he is not trusting God. God has promised you, Abram, that you're going to have all this land and all this blessing and all this inheritance and be a great nation. He's going to look after you. But I'm a bit scared of the Egyptians. So how about you protect me, wife? He's a sinner, wicked man, and harm comes on everyone. Harm on Pharaoh. I can only imagine the harm to Sarah. I mean, it's just unimaginable. There are echoes in here of the Exodus. I don't know if you noticed them. I don't really know what to make of them, but they're just interesting. Right? They go to Egypt because of famine. They get involved with Pharaoh's household. God punishes the Egyptians such that they let God's people go and send them on their way wealthy. But there are also great differences, aren't there? For here, Sarai, who would be the mother of Israel, is shacked up with Pharaoh. And Abraham, who's meant to be the father of faith, is instead a scoundrel. See, the man that God made the promises to in the end, it wasn't about him. God didn't choose him because of anything to do with him. God chose him because God chose him. That's how God works. The importance was not that Abram was a godly man with warts, but that he was a chosen man whom God made promises to. God said, I am going to choose you. Abram. It's fascinating. You know, one of the few things that we know about Abram is that his dad was pagan. Was that his dad worshipped other gods. All right, Joshua chapter 24, I think it is, verse 2. You can go look it up another time. Joshua 24, verse 2. Terah worshipped other gods. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that Abram too would have followed his father's footsteps. Chosen by God. And God makes a covenant with him. 
Right, if you want to read the rest of chapter 15, another time, God comes and says to Abram, oh, this is going to happen. You mark my words. And he, he cuts a contract with him. Literally cuts. They get animals and cut them in half. That's how they, blood and fire. This will happen, God said to Abram. It was very one-sided. I mean, most contracts we think it's, if you do this, I will do this. But God just said, I will by my word. So we have these astonishing promises made to a man who was godly, who was righteous in his belief, but was a sinner, was chosen by God. What are we to do with it? What are we to do with this passage? Well, I've got five different points of application for us. Number one, be like Abram. Be like Abram um, in the good bits, okay, not the bad bits. Uh, don't be a pimp, all right, that's, that's not okay. Really, it's not. In the good bits. Hear God's word and obey it. Hear God's word and believe it. It's so easy to question and to argue and to not want to do it and oh, and to not like bits of it. To be honest with you, there are bits that are just... Be like Abram. And you know what? It's easier for us than it was for him. All he had to go on was a few promises that God made. That was it. All he had was God saying, at some point in the future, I'm going to do these things for you. And he believed that. We have so much more than Abram did. We have all of the Old Testament full of examples of men and women who trusted God. We have a great cloud of witnesses it says in Hebrews 11, pressing us on in our belief, in our trust. And even more than all of that, we have the fulfillment of the promises. Abraham looked forward and hoped. We look backward and see the Lord Jesus and know that God's promises have come true. Be like Abraham. He got his name changed. Don't be like him in that you get your name changed. Just if I say Abraham instead of Abram, that's why. Be like him in hearing God's word, obeying and believing with our eyes set on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second application, understand how God works. The story of Abram really is, in, in many ways, just a little snapshot of how God operates. This wasn't unusual. God calls his people. God chooses those who are his, not because of anything in them. God came to Abram before Abram had done anything. Before there was circumcision, before there was the law, before there was any kind of mechanism of becoming God's people. He came to Abram and he said, you be mine. That is how God works. Let me see with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes along. He says to people, you follow. And they do. Maybe a bit nicer than that. but Now this could lead us to despair. If this is how God operates, that he calls those who are his, then should we just be fatalists? And should we just kind of, ah, well, God will do it or he won't do it. and It's just depressing really. 
To be honest, I find it the opposite. I find it a source of great contentment and comfort because God is so much gooder than me. Sorry if I, I don't have a better word for it. In whose hands would you prefer it to be than in his? The one who would not withhold his own son but sacrifice him for our good. If he is the goodest, the best, the kindest, the most loving, the most merciful, whose hands could it better be in the salvation of mankind than his? One more place in which we are called to trust. But it should also move us to prayer. It's not fatalism and let it be so, but it's pleading with our Father. He invites us to do this. He delights in working through our prayers to show mercy. Be like Abram, understand how God works. Thirdly, see and understand the big picture of the Bible. The Bible is not a random collection of morals. It's not just a book full of lots of different stories and each one of them has a different meaning. You ever heard of Aesop's Fables? Who's read Aesop's Fables? A few of you. There you go. I would have thought it would be more popular than that. Uh, It really is a book, a collection of just morals, right? It's just a whole bunch of little stories and each one of them has a point. There's the story of, uh, what is it, the fox and the gingerbread man, right? That's kind of how they all go. And the fox and the gingerbread man are standing beside this river and the gingerbread man wants to get across and he, he says, well, I'm, I'm made of gingerbread. If I get in the water, I'll dissolve and die. And the fox says, oh, well, how, how about you hop on my back and I'll carry you across. And the gingerbread man says, oh, I couldn't do that. You're a fox. You'll eat me. And the fox says, no, I won't eat you. Go on, get on and we'll cross together. And so the gingerbread man does. And they start, oh, actually, I'll tell you the end later if you want. The point is, right, Aesop's Fables is a collection of stories with different morals. The Bible is not like that. It is one story from beginning to end. And that is very hard are these promises. Here is where the beginning of the salvation of the world began. And you want to understand the rest of it, understand this. Start here and work your way across. You want to understand Jesus, you need to know these promises. You want to understand the history of Israel, you need to know these promises. You want to understand what's going to happen when Jesus returns, you need to understand these promises. It's all one big picture. You'd be blessed, I think, from signing up to study Introduction to the Bible. It's a more college externals course, external studies course. I wonder whether we don't run it at the start of next year. Uh, that just helps you put together the whole big picture of the Bible. The intro to the Bible. It's brilliant. I highly recommend it. Okay, number one, be like Abraham. Two, understand how God works. Three, see the big picture. Fourthly, the true descendants of Abram, therefore, are... You almost need a drum roll. We're going to skip Hebrews and we're going to go to Galatians chapter 3. Look it up with me. Galatians chapter 3. No, don't, push, don't press forward too many times. We'll come to him. Don't worry about it. Galatians 3. Skip over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. We're going to read a few bits of Galatians 3, so it's worth looking up. Remember, at stake here is who are the descendants? Who are the heirs of the promises? 
chapter 3 of Galatians, page 1129, if you're looking at Pew Bibles. It's after 2 Corinthians, it's before Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that the non-Jews, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are the true descendants of Abraham? Well, actually, as it turns out, it's not the biological offspring. It's not Israel. It's not the Jews. It's not the Hebrews. It is those who are faithful. Those who hear God's word and believe. Right? It's not the Muslim. It's not even all who claim to be Christian. But it is those who are faithful. That's the word we use. It just means the same thing. Those who believe. Those who trust. It's an astonishing thing, isn't it? That all of a sudden, the descendants of Abraham could be found among the Gentiles. Do you know why that's astonishing? For us in particular? Because it's us. Because outside of that promise, it would have been restricted to one biological group of people and we would have had no hope but we begin to see how the promise that blessing would come to all nations comes about so if the true descendants of abraham are those who have faith who then are the heirs who are the promises for number five in my application well as it turns out um there was a little bit of a technicality in the will I don't know if you've ever come across an incident like that before. Uh, There was one word in particular in the promises that God made to Abram that turned out not to mean quite exactly what everyone else thought it meant. Have a look with me again in Galatians chapter 3, this time at verse 16. Galatians 3 verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed... The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. It turns out that there's only one heir of the promises. There's only one true descendant of Abraham, the man of faith. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In whom the promises that God made to Abraham do find their fulfillment. God promised Abraham the promised land. But as it turns out, that was just a shadow of the even bigger promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will bring about a whole new creation. A whole new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. That is the land of rest. God promised that he would provide offspring uncountable. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has brothers and sisters for him that are numbered in the billions. God promised 
to Abraham, salvation to the nations, blessing to the ends of the world. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, that has poured out in a way that was unimaginable. He is the heir. And we get to be too. Jump to verse 26 in Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We do get a share of the inheritance. But we only get it because we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to you spend a very entertaining 10 minutes? Google crazy inheritance stories. You'll find some absolute doozies. They are just... I, honestly, I, I was properly entertained for at least 10 minutes, which is very unusual on the internet. I, I want to share my favourites with you. There's one bloke called Charles Vance Miller. There he is. Uh, at least the internet says that's him, and I believe the internet, and apparently that's a photo of his will. Uh, Charles Vance Miller was a lawyer, a Canadian lawyer, who had no, no children, no kind of immediate relatives. He had no one to leave his really quite wealthy estate to. Uh, so he, he basically just set up a whole stack of jokes uh, and, and just played practical jokes on people. He, uh, he left uh, a whole stack of shares in, in a brewery to a bunch of people involved in the temperance movement, right? With the condition that they could only acquire wealth from it if they kept the shares. So they had to maintain ownership of a brewery to get... He, uh, he gave joint lifetime tenancy of one of his holiday homes to three men who were known to be sworn enemies. It's just this kind of... My favourite was the ninth clause of his will. He said that the remainder of his estate, and again, quite a substantial amount of money, would be given to whichever woman had the most children in the ten years after his death. Man. Whoo! It, uh, it began what is now referred to as the Great Crane Derby. You know, cranes and they're affiliated with... Anyway... It was challenged in court and all that kind of rigmarole as usual, but it held. And so 10 years later, four women came forward, this is in Toronto specifically, who had given birth to nine children each in that 10-year period. And so they received something like $1.2 million each when it was split up between them. Right? It was a lot of money, the equivalent of it. They had nine kids, man. That's like every 11 months. <laughs> or, or, or Luis Carlos, a Portuguese man from Portugal. Again, very wealthy, no descendants. He just grabbed the phone book, picked 70 names and said, divide my estate by 70 and give each one a share. Can you imagine that phone call? <laughs> yes, uh, you've inherited a large amount of money from a person you don't know. You're like, was this a Nigerian scam? Just, like, no, no, really, you've got a lot of money. But you know what? It doesn't matter how crazy and outrageous an inheritance story you can find it doesn't compare to ours that God would take 
Not just 70 random people from a phone book, right? Not, not, not a competition, not, but his sworn enemies. The people who murdered his son. The people who had rejected his right to rule. The people who had accepted good gifts day in, day out without a thought of thanks. The people who were just blackened by sin. And said to us, you can inherit alongside my son. It's the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. It will be yours. The blessings that I have poured out upon him will be yours. Where do you find joy as a Christian, Matt, started today for us? Could it be anything other than that? That astonishing Words start to just fail at this point, right? That God would do that for us. What a comfort to know that it doesn't matter really what happens. You can put, put up with a couple of years of poverty if you know that when Great Uncle Rich dies, you inherit 10 million bucks. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you could get through with that. We can get through this life with its hardships, with its suffering, with its difficulties, with its problems, with its conflicts with its great sadnesses, in the sure and certain knowledge of the promise of the Lord God Almighty, founded in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the inheritance that belongs to God's own Son is shared with us. I hope you go home today rejoicing if you know this. And that if you don't, you come and join in. It's free. It's offered to you too. And all you have to do is be like Abram. Hear God's word and believe. And trust yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises that you made. You, you didn't have to. There was nothing that required of you to bring about this astonishing salvation. And there was nothing that was required of you that, that you would fulfill it by sharing the inheritance of your son with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your astonishing mercy. Thank you for this gift. Fill us with all joy and all hope in believing that the sure and certain knowledge of what you have promised, grounded in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the inheritance of the world to come, would fill every moment of our lives now, through the toil and through the struggle, with true and great and deep joy. And that it would move us, Father, to live as Abraham did, hearing your word, believing and obeying. Amen.